Thanks, Pastor Greg. Well, I got a text this morning at about 5.15 from Jordan Banez telling me that uh, they were getting on the plane heading to Panama City, Florida. We have a team going out there to do some relief work because of Hurricane Florence. And I, I can't help think of just, well, I can't just help be, be so proud of our church and, and, and folks constantly, even here just before Christmas, going out uh, across the country to do that kind of work. So let's keep them in our prayers. Uh, this is an exciting time, exciting season here as our, at our church as we get ready for Christmas. And so I hope that you will... Uh, be a part of that and invite your friends and family to that, all right? So, you know, today we come to the end of our study in the book of James, which we called our series uh, Faith in Action. And it has been such a rich time as we have learned that faith is not just a mental ascent, but rather it is something we must live out. It is something we must do. And we come to the end of chapter 5 today, starting in verse 7. So if you brought your Bible, turn there. And in your program, by the way, which we call Baywatch around here, there's an outline, and all of the key uh, verses are listed there. Some of the incidental verses are not there. Uh, all the verses will be here uh, on your screen. And you can also follow along uh, in your notes on our South Bay Community Church app. If you look for South Bay Community Church app, just go to the, the Google Store, the Apple Store. You can download it even as you're sitting here. You'll have it in just a couple minutes, and then you can follow along. You can also listen to this message and all the other messages on that app later on today if you'd like to do that. All right, so before we jump in, let's, let's open up our time in prayer. Uh, excited to be here, and let's pray that God will just do something really great in, in each and every one of us. Well, Father, thank you so much. What a beautiful day this is, and God, how good it is to be here today. And Father, we, we are so proud of our team, so many teams this year have gone out to different places, and, and our final team, Father, is heading uh, out to Panama City, Florida, which was one of the hardest hit areas when Hurricane Florence made land here just a couple of months ago. And Father, there, there are people there who are going to be shocked that there are Christians in California, and I just pray that our team, well, first of all, you just give them, I know they're still on the plane, give them a safe trip there, allow them to land safely and to get to their destination. And Father, I pray for your favor to be upon them, that they would be able to connect well with each other. Some of them are meeting each other for the first time, even on our own teams. And I pray that you would allow them to connect well, not only with the Samaritan's Purse group, but with the homeowners that they have an opportunity to minister to. We pray, God, for huge opportunities. Pray opportunities for, for them to share the good news, to be a light of Jesus Christ to them. And God, we ask that you would use them in a powerful way all throughout this week. And Father, I pray that for every one of us, that we would be a light wherever we go. And in fact, what we learned today uh, can really help us, Scott, to, to be those kinds of people, the, the light that you want us to be. So I pray, Father, that today we wouldn't hear from, no one would hear from man, but we would hear from you. We would hear clearly from you, Holy Spirit. Teach us from your word. Teach us, God. Stir us in our hearts, stir in our hearts that we might be the people you want us to be. So we commit this morning to you. Look forward to what you're going to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, there was a story attributed to a New York City taxi cab driver, and the story went viral. Now, I don't know if the story was true or not. I hope it is, because it was very moving. It was very touching, and I want to share it with you today. It was something that the taxi, taxi cab driver actually supposedly wrote. Now, here's what he wrote. I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away, but instead I put the, park, the car in park and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small, a small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the wall, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. 
She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? Well, it's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rear view mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had... She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring in the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired. Let's go now. And we drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled out. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have, you have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. And almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug, and she held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a, sh a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought. For the rest of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or had honked once, then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. So true, isn't it? And what a great story. And he asks some very important questions at the very end of it. Like, what if the woman got an angry driver? What if he was so impatient to end his shift that he honked once and then left? What if he didn't have any patience for her whatsoever and he charged her for that long drive? Well, then the opportunity to touch that little old lady's life would have been completely lost. Great moments are lost because we're in such a rush. We've got places to go and things to do and people to see. We live in a society in which everything must be done now, instantly. I mean, even such mundane things as eating breakfast. We want our breakfast now, instant breakfast. We want our lunch now, instant lunch. Now, you can even make instant dinners with your instant pot. <laughs> and we've got one. We even want our desserts now, instantly. We want instant muscles, so we wear these muscle shirts underneath our clothes. And now you know why Pastor Greg looks so buff. <laughs> we want everything now, and we hate waiting for anything. We hate waiting in lines when you go to the store and you're trying to buy that Christmas gift, and the line is forever. We hate waiting at the doctor's office. We hate get, waiting behind a train that's crossing through torrents. I hate it when the signal turns green and the guy in front of me takes his sweet old time to step on the gas to go. And patience has got to be one of the least celebrated of all virtues. We are so impatient. Well, today's passage, as we come to the close of James, uh, the book of James, James chapter 5, this passage begins with a call for the church to be patient. For us to be patient. So let me read it, starting in verse 7. We'll just, be, we'll just read it, and then we'll take it all apart. 
and see what it really says. Starting in verse 7, here's what he said. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You can stop right there. All right, so grab a pen, and I want you to circle a couple of words for me. In verse 7, circle the word patient. You can circle it twice because it appears twice in verse 7. In verse 8, circle the word patient. In verse 10, circle the word patience. And then in verse 11, circle the word steadfast and steadfastness. Now, let me take this apart for you. In verse 7, 8, and 10, the word patient is the Greek word makrothumeo. Makrothumeo, put it up here for you. It looks like this. Makrothumeo is a, is, a, is a Greek compound word, which means it is made up of two words. That's why I put a hyphen between the two. The first word is makros, and it's where we get the word macro, which means large. That's kind of how we use the word macro. It's large. But the Greeks translate or define makros as long. So they say it means long. And then the word thumeo, the second word in this, is the word anger. It means anger. And if you put the two words together, macrothumeo means long-tempered, or long-tempered as opposed to short-tempered. And in the ESV, it's translated in the word patient or patience. And then that's, that's, again, that's in verse 7, 8, and 10. In verse 11, I ask you to circle the word steadfast and steadfastness. This is the Greek word hupomone, hupomone. It looks like this, hupomone. And hupomone is often translated as patient. And like it is here in James chapter 1, in the New King, King James Version, take a look at James. And this one is up here only on your screen. But it says, my brother, and count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience, hupomone, patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hupomone means to wait or to patiently endure. It means to wait or to patiently endure. So what we see in this passage, right from the get-go, from 7 to 11, there are two Greek words for the word patient, two Greek words. And it's makrothumeo and hupomone. And the difference between the two is this. Makrothumeo <clears throat> refers to being patient with people. Be patient with people. Makrothumeo, it applies to people. Whereas hupomone refers to being patient with your circumstances. <clears throat> patient with your circumstances. In verse 7 and 8, 8 and 10, the word that's used, makrothumeo, James is calling us to be patient with people. So you can write that one down. That's your first point. We need to be patient with people. We need to be patient with people. And this is so important. I mean, I, I, as I study this, I, I came to realize, first of all, I, I, know how, I know that I'm impatient. But I came to realize that this is not something that we talk about very often here in church, that we need to be patient. But we need to be patient. This is so important because people, the fact is people test our patience. People test our patience, especially difficult people. In fact, in this broken, sin-stained world that we, are, we live in, we are surrounded by difficult people. They are all around us, and they push our buttons. It may be that coworker who wouldn't hesitate to stick a knife in your back. It may be the office gossip or the class bully. It may be that angry, impossible-to-please wife or the insensitive, do-nothing husband or the untidy spouse. It may be the passive-aggressive friend who on the outside appears to be fine, but on the inside is seething with rage. It may be the critic who is always complaining and criticizing everyone and everything. It may be the guy who's always taking pot shots at others with his or her snarky comments. It may be the control freak or the out-of-control boss or the people pleaser or the overbearing parent or the in-law who is always butting into your affairs. It may be the needy, aging parent or someone plagued with insecurity. It may be someone in your small group that doesn't have a filter who dominates every conversation. It may be the know-it-all who 
pats himself on the back in front of everyone. It may be the person that you've got to tiptoe around because you're like a volcano ready to blow at the slightest provocation. It may be someone who feels entitled, who is demanding, who is always wanting something from you. It may be someone who is inconsiderate and rude. It may be someone, and, uh, and it's not just difficult people. It might be someone, it might be a basketball player who's not as good as you are that you've got to be patient with. Or it might be that parent who has dementia that you've got to be patient with. Or maybe that student who's not as bright as you are that you've got to be patient with because they're in your study group. Uh, there's so many people that we've got to be patient with, and that's why this is so important. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but there's a good chance, there's a good chance that as I ticked off this list of, of difficult people, you thought of at least one person who fits the bill. So I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, but I'm not that one, all right? <laughs> Seriously, what can make a difficult person even more difficult is they don't have a self-awareness, is that some people don't have a self-awareness that they're difficult. And that makes, it even, that makes them even more difficult. They're totally clueless that they are difficult. So it begs the question, how do we deal with difficult people? Right? How do we deal with difficult people? And the Bible actually has a lot to say about this, more than I ever imagined. But for our purposes, we can't be jumping all over the place, although I'm just going to give you a couple things here. Uh, we're going to look at Job and see what Job, I mean, not Job, but we're going to look at what James has to say here. And what he said was very clear. What he said was very clear. And the first thing we've got to do, he said, we've got to be patient. Now, we see this idea all throughout the scriptures, everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere, wherever you go. And you might remember our recent series uh, on the Holy Spirit. It was called God Inside. And toward the end, toward the tail end of that series, we talked about the, the fruit of the Spirit. You remember the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, we'll just put it up here for you. For, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, patience, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Right, but patience is right there. So circle the word patience. Patience is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. And you might be familiar with the love chapter. What's the love chapter? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And it begins, verse 4, love is what? Patient. Love is patient. Love this is kind, does not boast or envy, is not arrogant, is not rude, it doesn't insist on its own way, is not irritable or resentful. Love is patient. It is it is a fruit of is through the spirit, and it is also love. Paul said this about patience in Colossians 3:12. He said, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He said, put it on. We need to put on patience. And then Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, he wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. Circle that word walk. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. With what? With patience. Bearing with one another in love. We are to walk in patience. We are to put on patience. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul wrote, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Circle the word all. Be patient with everyone, in other words. And so, as you can see from these scriptures, patience is such a, is a premium in the Christian walk, in the Christian life. It is one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is love. We are to put it on, and we are to walk in it, and we are to be patient with everyone. We are to be patient with all. You are to be patient with your husband. You are to be patient with your wife. You are to be patient with your son and your daughter and your brother and your sister and your uncle and your aunt, your neighbor and your roommate, your boss and your coworker, your classmate and your teacher, with church people and your pastor and even strangers. And yet I have a hunch that so many of us fail when it comes to being patient. Last night I had a Quite a few people come up to me and say, I kept jabbing my wife and her ribs because she is impatient. And I had wives come and say, my, my husband's so impatient. I'm so glad you spoke to him about this. And uh, <laughs> I, was, I was just cracking up because so many people think the other person is not patient. Maybe that's true. But, but I have a hunch that so many of us fail when it comes to being impatient. And I know that I do. And you know what happens 
when we fail to be patient, you know what happens? We get short. We lose our temper. We got all bent out of shape. We blow our stack. And it can, lead, it can even lead to estrangement. I mean, we, could, we can decide that we're going to cut people off because we've, we're done with them. I've had it with them. Well, I'm, I don't want to have anything to do with them. That's, what, that's what it, where impatience can lead. And a little more than a month ago, uh, I was outside. I think it was uh, Monday morning. I was outside uh, the house. Uh, I don't know what I was doing exactly. I was washing my car or something like that. And then a salesman uh, came up to me pitching some windows. And I was, he says, hey, I, can I talk to you? I, I, I noticed your windows are pretty shot here. And so, yeah, that's, you know, house is getting old. So, so I was not, uh, slightly interested because our house is getting old and we need to, we, we need to do some repairs on the house. So I, I, I was kind of interested in, in uh, getting some new windows. And so he said, well, you know, let me, I'd like to talk to you about that some more. I said, yeah, okay, I don't have any time enough. So I gave him my number. Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. Gave him my number. And so the next day, someone from his office called, and uh, she called, and she said, hi, I'm, confirm- I'm calling to confirm your appointment with our window guys on Thursday. I said, well, I didn't make any appointment. She says, oh, I'm sorry. He says, but we'll come out anyways. I go, no. I said, I didn't make an appointment. Well, what time would work for you? I said, I didn't make an appointment. She says, well, would Thursday afternoon be okay? I said, I, I have to work on Thursday. Well, how about Friday? I says, I have to work on Friday. Well, what if we'll come in the evening then. I says, I, you know, I work till late on Friday night. So I says, I can't make it. Well, co- well what about Saturday? I says, well, I, Saturday, I, I go back to the office. I have to work on Saturdays as well. And she was very persistent. And I finally says, you know, I, I can't, I'm not, I said, look, I said, I, I, I just told the guy I'm interested and I need to think about it and I need to talk to some people about it. And so please, no, I'm not interested. And, and she said, okay, well, she said, you know, uh, well, when can I call you back? I says, no, I'll call you, all right? I'll call you. And, and she just kept pushing. Well, a, a couple days later, she called me again. She called me again, and she kept saying, you know, I, I, I want to call and make an appointment. I said, I, I told you I'm not interested. I said, I have to wait. I, you, you need to give me some time to think about this. I'm busy. I've got other things to do. And so please, uh, and she wouldn't, she wouldn't take no for an answer. She just kept pushing, and I kept telling her no, no, no. And finally, she, uh, she wouldn't get off the phone. I told her, I have to go. I said, I have to go. Well, what about, what about Wednesday? What about Wednesday? I said, I have to go. She said, well, what about Thursday then? Well, what? And I finally said, I have to go, and I just hung up on her. I was so frustrated, right? She just got me to this point where I didn't have any more patience. I ran out of patience. And so, uh, and I hope it wasn't anyone from the church. Um, <laughs> the next day, she called again. And I recognized the number because she'd called enough times already, so I didn't pick up. I've got caller ID, and I didn't pick up. And then uh, she called again, and then she called again. And again, one more time, I, I, said, I said, I don't have an answer for you, okay? I don't have an answer. Please stop, right? Two days later, she called again. So I finally added her 714 number to my block call list, and she continued to call. Now, my block call list allows me not to receive any calls, but every time I receive a call from her, I get a notification that she called. My phone won't ring, but I get a notification that she called. A month later, a month later, which is a week and a half ago, a month later, my patience ran out for good. It ran out for good, and I'd had it with her because I'd got two more notifications that day, and I decided to call her. I decided that I was going to call her and tell her what I thought, and so... Uh, before I did, I, tally, I went through my phone and I tallied up the number of times she had called in the last 30 days, right? Do you know how many times she called in the last 30 days? She called me 31 times in the last 30 days. And, uh, and so I called her up and I, I was very nice, pastor nice, I was very nice. <laughs> and and as they have caller ID, so as soon as I called, she knew who I was. She should have, she probably memorized my number, Right? <laughs> She knew who I was. I said, this is Gary Shihama. She says, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know? She says, yeah, I got your number here. I go, I said, now, I said, do you know how many times you've called me in the last 30 days? She says, no, I don't. I get, you've called me 31 times in the last 30 days. I said, lady, that's a little ridiculous. You know, and I was be- being very nice. I said, please stop calling me, all right, please. And she said, okay, thank you, goodbye. 
I mean, I guess she gets the reward for persistence, right? But she also gets the, the award for being a little bit annoying. See, the problem, with pro, the problem with patience is that it's like money. It runs out after a while. And we all become impatient. Uh, it, there never seems to be enough of it. I never seem to have enough patience. And that's the first thing that uh, he addresses in this passage. He talks about patience. And he, and he speaks uh, specifically, he speaks of our attitude toward patience. And here's what he said about our attitude. Verse 7. Take a look at it again. He said, be patient, therefore, brothers. What? What? Until, until what? The coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. Are you kidding me, James? I got to be patient until the coming of the Lord? Well, the Greek word for coming, by the way, I'm just, let me take this part for you, is parousia. All right? It's the Greek word parousia. And it means presence or arrival. And in the scripture, scriptures, parousia can refer to one of two events. It can refer to the rapture or it can refer to the second coming of Christ. Now, the rapture is spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 17 through 17. I'm not going to put that up here for you, but just reference it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, in which Jesus, it says that Jesus will descend from heaven and all those who are believers who have died over all these many centuries, all those who are buried, you're in the casket, you're in the ground, your ashes are scattered, whatever they might be, all those who have died will suddenly rise out of the ground to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. And then all those who are alive, right after those, the dead go first, all those who are, who are alive, Christ followers who are alive, they will also rise for whatever, whatever you're doing. You may be driving a car. We may be sitting at church. You may be sitting at the office. You may be in a classroom. You might be even taking a shower. I hope that doesn't happen. And the rapture will occur, and, and up you go, right? Up we're, we're going to go. That's the rapture, right? And Perugia also refers to the second coming. The second coming is when Jesus will return to earth for a second time at the end of the great tribulation period. And in roughly 10 days, we're going to celebrate Christmas, which was the first coming of Jesus. Well, the Bible says there's going to be a second coming when Jesus comes to earth for the second time, not on a donkey, but in all of his glory. Now, it's important to note that these two events, the rapture and the second coming, are not the same event. They're two separate events. And the rapture will occur before the second coming. The rapture happens first, seven years later, the second coming. And Perugia can refer to both events. And Jesus said that we're to be patient until then. We are to be patient until these events occur. That begs the question, well, when is it going to happen? When is the, when is the, if the rapture is going to occur first, well, when is the rapture going to happen? Or when's the second coming going to happen? Well, the an honest answer is we don't know. We don't know. It can happen today. It can the rapture can occur today, this very moment before we leave church. Or it may not occur for another thousand years or even longer than that. We don't know. In which case, if it doesn't occur for 50 or 100 years, we got a long time to be patient, don't we? A long time to be patient. But I think the point is very clear that we've got to be patient without flinching. Right? You can write that one down. We've got to be patient without flinching. We've got to be resolute in our patience. We've got to be steadfast. We need to be willing to go the distance when it comes to to patience until the Lord comes. In other words, patience is not for wimps. And if you're thinking of bailing out and you're thinking that my patience is about to run out here, James says this in verse 8. Take a look at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He said it is at hand. We underline is at hand. In the, in the Greek, this is the word, is at hand, expresses the idea of extreme clo closeness. The Lord is extremely close. So if you're thinking, I've got to be patient with my spouse until the Lord comes, are you kidding me? No, what, what James says here is, it's not going to be that long. It's not going to be that long. The Lord will be here before you know it. He'll be here before you know it. And you will be in, you will be in heaven before you know it. So just be patient until then, right? So we got to be patient. Long-suffering, that's why, is what the scriptures in interpreted or call it in some places. And then verse 9 says this, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge, capital J there, judge is standing at the door. Do not grumble. Circle the word grumble. In the Greek, this word means to groan within oneself. Groan with frustration. Describes an attitude that is internal and unexpressed. 
In other words, it's kind of like, you don't express it necessarily, but you're just thinking it like, you're driving your car, you're just impatient. It emanates from deep within. James says, don't groan with frustration. Don't moan with frustration. When someone tests your patience, you may not let out a bad word, but you're just like, that's kind of what he's talking about. He says, don't do it. Right? In other words, so write this one down. Be patient and don't complain. Or don't groan. Be patient and don't complain and don't groan. Why? Church, we got to get this one right. You know why? Because it says here, so we won't be judged. Because the judge is standing at the door. Jesus is standing at the door. So we won't be judged. You see, the scriptures teach that one day, every believer, every Christ follower will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought you said that, you know, if you're Christ follower, you're not judged. That's true. But take a look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. And, and Paul wrote this, For we must all appear, notice all, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, one, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, let me make something real clear here. This is not a judgment of believers and unbelievers, right? This is a judgment of those who are in the church. This is not a judgment of one's sins or a judgment of whether you are saved or not, whether you go to heaven or not. No, that, if you've put your faith in Christ, that matter has already been settled. It was settled at the cross. Christ died for your sins. You believe in him and you trust in him, you are forgiven, you are saved, you're going to heaven, you don't have to worry about that, you will not be condemned, right? This, Paul and James speak of a second judgment, a different kind of a judgment in which Christ's followers will appear before Christ to call the judgment seat of Christ and we will be judged for the way that we lived our Christian life. We will be judged for the works that we did in the body, in the body of Christ. We will be judged for whether or not we served him and how we lived our lives. And the judgment, so the, the judgment that James speaks of has, concerns our eternal reward. Not our eternal salvation, but our eternal reward. And according to this passage in, J, in James, we will be judged in part by how we treated each other. How we treated each other. Whether or not we were patient with our brothers, fellow brothers and sisters. All right, I hope, hope that makes sense. Verse 10 goes on. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You can stop right there. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Again, the word patience in verse 10, makrothumeo, which has to do with being patient with people. And James references here the prophets of old who suffered at the hands of others, you know, probably like Jeremiah, who suffered greatly throughout his ministry, and Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. He, was, he suffered greatly, and they demonstrated makrothumeo toward their persecutors. They were very patient toward those who persecuted them. That's what this is saying. And then verse 11 says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Okay, there's that word steadfast, hupomone. You've heard of the steadfastness, hupomone. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. This has to do with circumstances. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so all of a sudden here in verse 11, James kind of just switches gears. He switches gears. Again, remember I pointed out steadfast and steadfastness is hupomone. And that was Job. He was hupomone. He was patient toward his circumstances. In fact, James 5.11 in the American Standard Version translation says, Behold, we call them blessed that endured. You have heard of the patience of Job. Right? It doesn't use the word steadfastness here, but you have heard of the patience of Job. Hupomone. And have seen the end of the Lord and how the Lord how, how, is, full of pity and mercy, is full of pity and is merciful. You know, Job... You know the story, you're familiar with the story of Job. Job uh, suffered extreme uh, hardship and extreme adversity. He lost everything that he had. He was aff afflicted physically. He, was, he lost his children. He lost his livelihood. And after all was said and done, he did not sin against God. He did not turn his back against God. He put his trust in God. He was, in other words, he was patient in his circumstances. Hupomone. We must not only be patient with people, but we must be patient 
in our circumstances. You can write that one down. Be patient in your circumstances. And I would ask you, what's going on in your life today? What are your circumstances? Your cir- you may not be impatient at all with, the, with people in your life, but maybe, maybe you're impatient with your circumstances. Maybe you want so much to have a baby, but, you, but it's not happening. Be patient with your circumstances. Maybe you want so much to, to be married. Be patient with your circumstances. Um, this Christmas may be shaping up to be the worst one you've ever had. Perhaps because you lost a loved one this year or because your spouse left you this year or you went another year without even getting asked out on a date or maybe you suffered your third miscarriage this year or maybe you just got laid off from your job or because you were just diagnosed with cancer or maybe your kids won't speak to you or maybe you're entangled in some kind of a legal dispute or maybe you and your spouse are at each other's throats or maybe your parents are getting a divorce or maybe it's fallen on you all on you to care for your aging parents or maybe your grades are so bad you might not graduate what's going on in your life whatever the circumstances are job said be patient with it be patient with it and remember don't give up don't for, don't give up god loves you and god is in control of your life and he's got your back and he is with you and then he adds in verse 11, don't forget that, that God is compassionate and merciful. He is compassionate and merciful, so hold on tight to him. That's your next point. Hold, be patient and hold on to God because he is still God. So I hope that makes sense. And then if you jump down to verse 13, James says this. He asks, first of all, is anyone among you suffering? By the way, that word suffering is the word that refers to evil. But is anyone among you suffering evil? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call, the, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Any idea what James is talking about here? Prayer. He's talking about prayer. We see it in in verse 13. Let them pray. Verse 14, let them pray. Verse 15, prayer of faith. Verse 16, pray for one another. Prayer of righteous person. Verse 17, he prayed. Verse 18, he prayed again. We we see this all throughout this passage. Pray, pray, pray. So what, what James is telling us is not only should we be patient in our circumstances and patient with people, but we also need to pray. So you can write that one down. We be patient and pray. Be patient and pray. Now, when you look at this passage, I don't know if you notice this, but at first glance, some of these verses make some pretty startling claims. I mean, think about that. Take a look at verse 15 again. And it says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Uh, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. That's a pretty bold statement if you ask me. It's, it's almost like slam dunk, guaranteed. He's going to save the one who is sick. And the Lord's going to raise him up. And then verse 16. Take a look at this one again. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I mean, these are pretty bold statements. It almost sounds like you are guaranteed healing if you pray. Guaranteed. No buts about it. No doubt. This is what's going to happen. So, is that what these verses mean? And well, to understand what James was saying here, first you've got to understand context, and then you've got to understand, it help, it's helpful to understand the original language. Let me, let me show you what's, what's going on here. A couple months ago, let me give you context, first of all. A couple months ago when we began this series, Pastor Greg and I explained to you that the book of James was written 
by the Apostle James to Jewish believers around 44 AD. All right, so to Jewish believers. So Jews had become Christians. They were part of the Jerusalem church. So they lived in Jerusalem. They were part of that church there. They become Christians. And what happened is we think, we believe it was because of persecution. They were persecuted that all of a sudden the church split. That the, that the Christians in this church, the Jewish believers, they split. And they went all different directions. In other words, they became refugees. They had to flee their homes. They, they, they were under emotional and spiritual distress. They, they were living under these extreme circumstances. It's kind of like, you know, you find out that you've got to evacuate your home because of a fire. And all you can take is whatever you can carry. And you've got to get out of there within a couple minutes. And then you're not sure where you're going to go and what you're going to do. And you might even end up living in, a, in your car in the parking lot of a supermarket, which is what I heard a lot of people were doing. And that's kind of the situation that these Jews, that Jewish Christians were facing. They were kind of like, they had to split. That was the context. That's the context for this whole letter. This letter was written to people in that situation, right? They were stressed out. Second, in order to understand, in order to understand what James is getting at here with prayer, it's important to understand some of the original language which was written, uh, which was written uh, in Greek. All right? The original language was Greek. So, for example, take a look at verse 14. Take a look at verse 14. James asks, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church to let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Circle the word sick, right? This word, is anyone among you sick? The word sick here is the Greek word astheneo. We'll put it up here for you. It's astheneo. And it means to languish, or it means feeble, or it means to be without strength. It's used in 2 Corinthians 12.10, for example, the same word. It's, which says this, and we'll put this up here for you. For the sake of Christ, then, Paul wrote, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, when I am astheneo, then I am strong. Now, here's what I want you to get. Paul was not speaking in this past. He was not speaking about physically, being physically sick. I am sick. I, I got, you know, for when I have cancer, then I am strong. For when I have the flu, then I am strong. That's not what he was talking about here. And when James talked about, is, is any one of you sick? He was, not, he, was talking, he was not talking about physical sickness. That's what I want you to understand. He was not talking about, and you've got diabetes, so you've got heart disease. When you, have, when you have gout, or when you have a headache, that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about being, being distressed. Being feeble, being languishing without strength. We see something similar. Take a look at verse 15. We see something similar in verse 15. James 5.15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Circle the word sick. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This word sick, different word, not asthenel. It's the Greek word komno. It's the Greek word komno. And komno means to be weary or exhausted on the verge of collapse from overwork, komno. It's used in Hebrews 12.3. Put that up here for you. The writer of Hebrews wrote, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He's referring to Jesus here. So that you may not grow weary. That word weary or fainthearted. That word weary is komno. Right? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow comno. It refers to being exhausted to the point of collapse. See, comno doesn't, when it says sick, we think, oh, sick, like you got a cold, right? Oh, I, I'm feeling sick. I got a stomach ache. No, that's not what this is referring to. This is not referring to fever, having a fever or heart disease or whatever it is. Sick, this is about struggling emotionally, being exhausted spiritually, struggling with some kind of spiritual, emotional exhaustion, not a physical illness. And see, what happens is we simply read this in our translation. We see the word sick and we think, oh, you know, man, if you're sick, man, this says here, just get the yell and pray and you're going to be healed. All right? And what's happened over the years is that without understanding context in the original language, verses like these are misunderstood and they are misapplied. And a lot of well-meaning people have taken these verses to mean that God is promising you to be healed. You will be, if we just pray for you and anoint you, you will be healed of your cancer and it'll be gone. And we see this, and people take this verse and it's out of context. 
and it is without understanding of the original language, and that's simply not what this is saying. Regardless, James is saying, you got to pray. You're exhausted. You're beat up. You're spiritually depressed. You're emotionally distraught. Pray. Pray and pray, and God can touch your life. Pray because there's power in prayer. And in this passage, James suggests three ways to pray. First, in verse 13, it says here, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Right? That word, let him pray. First, we got to pray. You can pray for yourself. You got to pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. Uh, and by the way, this, again, this Greek word for suffering is, it refers to some type, suffering from some type of evil. Right? And it was probably the persecution that James and his people were uh, going through or the people of his church were going through. So pray for yourself. Second, it says here, ask the elders of the church to pray for you. See that in verse 14. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The elders would have been the overseers of the church. They're the leaders of the church. That would include the pastors of the church. Pastors are considered elders according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And uh, as you know, here at South Bay, we have five pastors. We're, we're looking to add a couple more. Uh, we also um, have a handful of elders, Rod Sugiyama, Morris Coe, Randy Shepard, uh, Gary Fukumoto, our elders in our church. And James said, get the elders, get the overseers of the church to come and pray for you and uh, even anoint you with oil as they pray. You know, throughout the Bible, um, anointing with oil symbolized consecration to God, separation to God. There's nothing with oil. There's nothing medicinal about it. There's nothing supernatural about it. It doesn't have any supernatural powers, right? But, it, but oil was used just as a means to intensify prayer. And Dr. Douglas Moe, who is a, a New Testament scholar, wrote this. I'll put his quote up here for you. I really like this. Great insight. He said, as the elders pray, they are to anoint the sick person in order to symbolize that that person is being set apart for God's special attention and care. That's kind of the idea behind anointing some with oil, that, that you are setting that, that person apart for God's special attention and care. Now, I really like that. I've, I've anointed people with oil in the past, but I don't do it very frequently. And this, reading this passage, studying this passage was, was a great reminder for me and our elders that we need to, to follow this admonition. And so... Um, we're gonna, you're going to be seeing us anointing people with oil a lot more often. We may not do it every single time, but I think it's a, it's, it's a worthwhile practice to bring attention to God, to, to intensify our prayers. Well, finally, James said that, so we need to pray, pray for yourself, get the elders to pray for you. Finally, James said that we should pray for one another. We should pray for one another. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The whole church We'd all be involved in prayer. We, we, all of us ought to be praying for each other. In fact, we, we, we like to do this thing called on-the-spot prayer here at our church. And we always encourage you. I always encourage you. Don't tell somebody you're going to pray for them. Right? You hear, that, you hear about somebody who's going to have a need. You hear that someone's going to have surgery. Don't tell, I'll pray for you this week. No, just pray for them right then and there. Pray, if, you can't, if you're not there, text them a prayer or email them a prayer. On-the-spot prayer. Today, if you find out about somebody who has a need, just pray for them right then and there, right, right on the spot. And we, the whole church needs to be involved in prayer. Notice it doesn't say you will be healed. Pray and you will pray for one another and you will be healed. No, it, it, it says you may be healed, right? See, it's up to God to heal. It's up to us to pray. It's up to God to heal, right? But if we don't do our part, maybe God won't do his part. So we got to pray, right? We got to pray for each other. And then... And then I want you to notice here, uh, at the end of the verse, there's a special emphasis placed on the prayer of um, a particular kind of person, and that's a righteous person. It says here, the prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman is particularly effective. Now, does that mean that the prayers of the average Christian, whoever that might be, that's me, that they aren't effective? No, absolutely not. God listens to everyone's prayers. Right? He hears all of our prayers. And all of us, whether you're a baby Christian or whether you've been a Christian for 50 years, everyone ought to pray. It's so important. But there's just, what he was getting at, well, there's just something, there's just something about the prayers of a man or a woman of God that grabs God's attention. 
There's something about that. And, and in verse 17, he cites the example of the prophet Elijah, who was a righteous man. Elijah was such a righteous man, he could literally pray up a storm. He could pray up a storm. Verse 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This guy could pray up a storm. He could pray for rain. He could pray for it not to rain, and it would all happen because he was a righteous man. And what I love about this story, what I love about this description of Elijah in verse 17 is this. He was a man with a nature like ours. I love that. He was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was just like you. He was just like me. He was ordinary. He wasn't special. He wasn't, you know, super pastor. He, he had a nature just like ours. He was just, just like us. And he could pray. And so this is a great reminder for every one of us that we should all strive to be men and women of God. Right? You should be, if you're a young person here, strive to be a young lady of God. Strive to be a young man of God. Endeavor to be righteous in the way that you live. And then pray and, you, and watch what God does as a result of your prayers. So, so this is a great, great reminder. So this entire section, the whole point of this, we got to pray. We got to be patient, but we got to pray. Well, finally, we get to the end of the last two verses. James closes with two what I call kind of off-the-wall statements. These are kind of just off-the-wall statements. It, these two statements don't have anything to, appear to have anything to do with the rest of the passage or the, or the rest of the chapter. It doesn't have anything to do with patience. And the same is true, by the way, with verse 12, which I didn't have a chance to cover today, but, but I got some question. I got a question in your discussion questions, which I've sent out to life groups last night on this particular verse, verse 12. So, so go to a life group and uh, investigate that. But here's what verse 19 and 20 says. Here's how he closes out the chapter. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and, anyone, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I have no idea why James tacked this on at the end of his letter. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. Why did he put this here? I don't know. Maybe James heard that some of the Jewish believers who had been dispersed and who knows where they were at were beginning to wander away from their faith. They weren't part of the church, and so they started to wander away from the faith. And that's why it's so important to be connected to a church. It's so important. I believe you got to go to church every single week because it's so easy to wander when you're not connected to fellowship and you're not hearing the word of God and you're not coming to, to worship God on a weekly basis, on a regular basis, it's so easy for us to wander. Besides the fact that the devil doesn't help very much, he's seeking, he's like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and that's you and that's me. If, you know, I remember when I was in the restaurant business, I stopped going to church for a year, two years. Man, I started wandering from my faith. But anyways, perhaps James heard that the people in his church were beginning to succumb to the persecution. And they were falling away from their faith. Or maybe they were influenced by the, the world and by the culture. Or maybe he found out that they weren't living out their faith. They were kind of Christians in name only. That's why he said, hey, don't be just, here's the word, but be doers. And maybe he was hearing all this. And so James encouraged his dispersed flock. He says, hey, you, you all know who these folks are. Bring them back. Just bring them back. And I think that's a great thought to end on. Every soul is important to God. Every life is precious to God. And here's the sad part. Every one of you, every one of you probably knows somebody who is a super Christian. I mean, just walk with God, love the Lord, but not anymore. You know people, maybe they went to church with you, Maybe they grew up going to church. Maybe they love the Bible. Maybe they went to Bible study and they studied and they loved to worship. But no more. For whatever reason, they have wandered away from the faith. You know people like that. I know people like that. And it's heartbreaking. 
in verse 20 seems to suggest that this is, this is, very, this is bad, right? This is bad. Verse 20 seems to suggest that if you fall away from the faith, you'll be lost forever. That's what it seems to suggest. You read it here, you'll be lost forever. If you fall away from the faith, you'll be lost forever. And church, that's not okay. That's not okay for, for one person to be lost forever. If you know someone like that, if you know someone who has wandered away from the faith, I want to encourage you. This is our admonition. This is James's admonition to us. I want to encourage you to help bring them back. Bring them back. Bring them back to the Lord. First of all, do, do it by praying for them. Pray for them. And then, and then make a conscious effort to reach out to them. Make a conscious effort to reach out to them to bring them back. And here's an idea. How about even this week, if you think of somebody, a couple people, text them a prayer. Text them a prayer. Or email them a prayer. And just say something like, hey, 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 John. Hey, John, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? I just want to know, man, I really miss you. And I love you so much. Dear, dear God, thank you for my friend, John. Man, he is the, the neatest person in the world. And I don't know what's going on in his life, but I just pray that you would just shower your love on him. I pray that you would just wrap your loving arms around him. And whatever he's going through, let him know, remind him that you are there for him, that you love him with all your heart. I lift him up to you in Jesus' name, amen. Just do that. Don't send him a guilty prayer like, dear God, I don't know where this guy's at. He's probably getting drunk every night and he's a mess and he's just, you know, and, and shame on him and, and you're gonna condemn him to hell forever. So bring him back. Don't do that, right? but just a, a gentle, gracious prayer reminding him or her that God loves them. And then maybe when they respond, they say, thank you for my prayer. Hey, by the way, you want to come to our, one of our Christmas services next weekend? I'll pick you up. I'll come with you. Saturday and Sunday. Or come to our Christmas Eve service. Bring them back. And you know what's going to happen if you bring them back? It says here, you will have saved their soul from death. You will have saved their soul from death. And that's why I take, I take this phrase here to mean that if someone is lost, someone wanders away, they could be lost forever because you're saving their soul from death. All right, so that's it. We're done. James 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The faith in action. Be patient. Pray. And bring people who have wandered away, bring them back. Amen? Well, let's close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, God. What a, what a great study this has been these, these couple of months. God, my heart is just full. It's just overjoyed. The opportunity, the privilege to be able to teach your word this morning. And, and for, for Pastor Greg and I to be able to do it all these months as we've unpacked the truths that are in this. And it's so very simple to us, God. It's so clear to us now that we simply can't be hearers of the word, but we must be doers of the word. We, we've got to live out our faith. We can't be Christians in name only. And Father, when it comes to this topic today, God, I, I, I asked, first of all, I asked for you to forgive me. For I'm so impatient. My patience runs out so quickly. And forgive me for that. And Father, I, I pray you'd hear the cries of forgiveness all throughout this room because I'm sure there's a bunch of people in here who can admit to the fact that they are impatient as well. And Father, I pray that from this day forward, you would help us to be patient and to be prayerful and to be loving because prayer, because patience is love, because patience is the fruit of the Spirit. And I pray, God, that by our patience and by our love and by our faithfulness and by our deeds, by our actions, people will know that you are God. God, right now, as we close, just thinking of those who have wandered away from the faith. I don't know why James put that there, but I'm glad he did. 
to remind us that there's some in the church who have wandered away. And Father, it's not okay. It's not okay for them to be lost forever. So God, use us. Help us to be patient with them, but use us to bring them back. So thank you, Father. We lift them up to you. We, we, we lift ourselves up to you. We need you to work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.